0: Welcome to the Restore Body Balance podcast, where we take an integrative approach, combining psychology, biology, and neurology to enact life changes that stick. I'm Colleen Burns, licensed psychotherapist and founder of Restore Body Balance.
1: And I'm Nico Yatanis, co-producer of this podcast. In today's episode, we will discuss big emotions and how to regulate them. So how will we start to approach this, Colleen?
0: Well, Nico, all emotions are derived from their own unique beliefs. So for example, at the Benson Henry Institute at Mass General Hospital, with support of Harvard Department of Psychiatry, we learned anger comes from injustice, something like sadness comes from loss, and anxiety comes from the lack of safety or control. And as we've said before, all of these emotions are embedded in what we call the bottom-up network or cerebral network. So as we say every week in the podcast, the more they're engaged, the more the paired stimulus response and the stronger the neural connectivity. So as we said last week, Nico, we need to learn to antidote our stressors, or thoughts and beliefs, with adaptive strategies and adaptive thoughts and beliefs. So once they're recognized, they can be actually fixed, or we can flex our thinking to a more adaptive and desirable effect. And once we get desirable emotions, they're signs of effective coping.
1: So what about undesirable emotions? We sometimes can't avoid them. As you always tell our listeners, the brain is drawn to bad news.
0: Yes. Negative automatic thoughts. People have acronyms for them all the time. And, you know, I knew somebody and his name is escaping me. I'll catch back up with the next podcast. He called them ants, which are automatic negative thoughts. So, These are things that we reflect deeply on. There are deeply held beliefs that are generally overly simplistic and inflexible. These are the habituated beliefs that often inhibit coping by locking us into our circular patterns of thinking and that just perpetuates stress.
1: Just like in last week's episode where you mentioned that our reaction to stress is habitual. We tend to react in the same way to every stressful situation we may experience. And everyone deals with or reacts differently.
0: Yes, and we need to become aware of our distortions and then we are actually free to edit and i'm using air quotes the distortion and begin to generate adaptive thoughts so this is often what we refer to with cognitive behavioral therapy when we've said to our listeners the a b c d e effect right a is the activating event b is the behavior c is the consequence and all we need to do is distort which is our d Um, the belief system. And then eventually E is we have a new emotional response. So again, essentially thinking that you can shift your focus from a stress-based response to that eliciting the relaxation response in best ways to cope. We also mentioned last week that this is also when we want to be operating in that top-down process making it easier to actually see these perspectives remember when we are in fight-or-flight we're like a little kid at Target plugging his ears and having a temper tantrum and we can't hear we can't hear we can't do the D or dispute the belief so we need to of course get into that relaxation response that we often talk about then we can have positive adaptive thoughts And the more these beliefs and thoughts are practiced, the greater their influence is to buffer stress and prevent maladaptive thinking.
1: That's why in your book you have the acronym O-N-E, observe, negate, and echo.
0: Great memory, Nico. Yeah, just by using something like one, we can look at observing our thoughts, negating the negative beliefs, and then echoing the positive or adaptive thoughts. And of course, like we also say in the book, bringing in abundance, right? Bringing in what we do have in terms of positivity. Um, this is also adapting to a positive perspective. And again, that is stored in what we're calling the top-down thinking or that executive branch of when we're actually able to use reason and connect us to other adaptive perspectives. See generally we, we get into this dichotomous thinking of things being good or bad and this just perpetuates stress unnecessarily. And then again, we have to look at what I've now found to be scientifically supported. For example, many people in my field know of a brilliant woman by the name of Barbara Fredrickson, and she came up with the broaden and build theory. Meaning when we're experiencing positive emotions like love, compassion, gratitude, Um, we're, We're more open to opportunities, and we're more likely to seek out what we need. And there's also the physicality of it when we are less prone to strokes, and we have lower levels of stress hormone cortisol that's constantly pulsing through our veins these days, and we have better immune systems. They call it psychological immunization. So whenever we adapt to the positive perspective or positive emotions, we actually begin to experience their benefits in addition to effective coping. We have strength, perseverance, courage, and convention.
1: That's a compelling theory and it definitely highlights the importance of staying positive. As I always try to bring in references in popular culture to help demonstrate the points we talk about, I was recently watching an episode of The Good Doctor where a patient was stressed and anxious before heart surgery, and the residents in the show mentioned that positive outlooks before surgery decrease the likelihood of complications, and negative outlooks could lead to possible complications. Now, I know that is a television show that could have no scientific support to its claims, but it echoes a study you brought up a few months ago in a podcast about people awaiting medical results and going through chemotherapy.
0: That's right. See, stress accumulates and when it does, everything just gets harder and we forget what we can do. So, to go back to your episode, you know, believe it or not, there are many surgeons and specifically people going through knee replacement surgery. The surgeons actually go through the Benson Henry's eight-week program for stress management, as we said, called SMART stress management and resiliency training. And most surgeons these days that go through his program or their program actually have their patients go through the eight week program before surgery. And not only do the surgeons have better outcomes, patients have better outcomes. And again, that's evidence based and statistically proven. Not only are we getting out of the fight or flight response and lowering inflammation in the body, which always happens after surgery, it's a it's a normal response, so we don't want to add more inflammation, but also from a, a pain perspective. There's many benefits, so I do agree with that, and I'm glad that your TV show is giving some props to mindful-based and positive psychology changes. The other thing we talked about in the book, Prescription for Change, is when I say give your brain a choice and we give it a chance, right? That's also a sense of empowerment. It's very important to harness the power of choice and experience happiness. It helps to shift the perspective.
1: That's why in the book, you refer to the chapters as shifts. Shifting perspectives takes time and care. And as you always say, we are not amenable to change in the stress-based response, we are all doing our best and everyone's journey to change is different or individualized eliciting the relaxation response when possible.
0: That's right. And of course, I always need to give you credit for designing that journal, Nico, because, and the cover, because the book really wouldn't be the book without the journal. It is designed to be done in several shifts. And again, each shift takes time to use that wonderful habituated brain to adapt to these tasks. It also broadens our awareness, again, in that top-down thinking. We want to prune back the bottom-up thinking of the stress-based response and really strengthen that awareness of top-down thinking so we can actually look at these alternative perspectives like cognitive reappraisal and positive expectation. It just helps us to adapt more effectively to stress. They buffer us and keep us in balance. So really, it's about awareness. They say awareness is power, but now we have to practice.
1: How else can we buffer stress to stop these negative emotions?
0: Well, the key buffers to stress are number one, safety, number two, pleasure, and the third is power. And let's just look at our world right now. We don't have a feeling of safety. Very few of us are doing our usual activities or ADLs, activities of daily living that give pleasure, and we certainly are feeling a loss of power. So some ways we can buffer stress and look at these emotions in ways to help adapt would be to find social supports. I mean, certainly therapy, friends, an online community, spirituality, family. We really just need to, again, get that feeling of support and safety. This is also where we can see neural changes. So for example, oxytocin and vasopressin we are always meaning to do that second uh, follow-up to our separation anxiety podcast where we're going to look at how animals specifically dogs because you and i have dogs nico actually produce a change in our body releasing oxytocin which regulates us and it gives us social attachment trust and connectedness
1: that's so interesting. So social support from someone like our dogs can potentially alter our mindsets?
0: Absolutely. You know, this is where you see dogs or cats become companions for the sick and the elderly. It gives a sense of caring for another person and the mutual love and affection. Hopefully, Dan Cavaletto of Cavaletto Canine, really well-known dog trainer, talks about this often in terms of our dogs wanting to follow us around and be in the same room it is a wonderful sense of companionship and also connectedness so once again to go to our current COVID-19 climate a lot of this stuff is missing but feeling and expressing a full range of emotions helps us to survive socialize and thrive I mean, we can't go through life without experiencing emotions, quite frankly, and I'm not sure you'd want to. Emotions are not all bad. They help us to get those survive fear alerts to threats. They also help us love and bond and, of course, feel safe. Then we have hope, which helps us to prepare for the future. Emotions just help us communicate, learn, explore and find our place in our world and our community.
1: Where do emotions come from?
0: Well, Nico, that's an excellent question. You know, going back to our ancient philosophers and scientists, they've debated this question forever, but it really wasn't until the 19th century whereby some of our most notable thinkers and theorists came into play. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners know of Charles Darwin. Darwin postulated that emotions are inherent from our animal ancestors and that our emotional, facial, and body expressions resemble the patterns of behavior of other species. He theorized that perhaps many of our universal facial expressions communicate and survive just by moving our mouth or our eyes in a certain way. Then in the 1880s, William James and Carl Lange like Darwin, proposed that emotions begin in our animal brain and are registered in the psychological processes below the brain stem. so i.e. our muscles, heart, lungs, skin, etc. So you have a reaction, a physical reaction to an event. However, unlike Darwin, they believe these reactions are constantly and instantly interpreted in what we now know to be the prefrontal cortex. But this is where, again, our interpretations and reasoning come into play. And they called it activation theory. Basically, it's a fear-based response. You see a snake and your heart speeds up and you label it fear. You can see where a lot of what we talk about, the etiology, is really from the original roots of these great thinkers. Then came along the work of Walter Cannon and Philip Bard in the 1920s. They counteracted the theory of James and Lange and proposed that you could feel an emotion at the same time you're having a physical reaction. And that one is not dependent on the other and you can also have them separately. And also this quote unquote connection occurs in the lower part of the brain that's connected to sensation. And by the way, Canon coined the term fight or flight. And as we've said in other podcasts, Dr. Herbert Benson coined the term, the relaxation response. And they both were Harvard doctors and they discovered it in the same room. I always like to throw in that anecdote. <laughs> Let's just really quickly for our listeners run through a few of the other great thinkers. For example, Magna Arnold introduced appraisal theory. So often we say in the podcast, having cognitive reappraisal and positive expectation. That's everything I learned at the Benson Henry Institute. So here at appraisal theory, your emotions are based on how you appraise or evaluate a situation based on your current goals and expectations so if your current goals and expectations for example are to get a job you go into an interview and if you feel like it went well you feel happy but if you feel you blew it you feel anxious and sad because again your current goal and expectation was to get the job so that's the emotion or the appraisal of the situation so it's more than just labeling but you can see why We need to actually study and understand the brain and the mind. So if you take that one step further, why at the Benson Henry Institute, they have a whole week studying, having positive expectation and cognitive reappraisal is that we're just conditioned to the appraisal based upon what our goals and expectations were. So let me give a personal example, because of course I still have a broken foot. But when I went in for my second set of x-rays, I was really hoping. So my goal was that I could lose this boot and I could get back to exercising again. That's how I use one of my ways to antidote stress. So when he came back and he said, no, another four weeks in the boot, my appraisal went down. I went immediately sullen, disappointed, probably wanted to cry. But then I used my skill set which buffers stress to have cognitive reappraisal and positive expectation, meaning, okay, the reappraisal is I still have to wear the boot, but at least it's healing and I don't need surgery. That was my other fear is that if it wasn't healing properly, I probably would have needed surgery. So that's a reappraisal that buffers stress. And then the positive expectation is my body's doing exactly what it's designed to do. I have four more weeks, countdown to Christmas, and hopefully I'll get where I need to be. Does that make sense, Nico?
1: Yes, it makes sense. Thank you for elaborating on it. And your application of that theory has rubbed off on me as well. I remember when I fell, um, when I slipped in the tub a few weeks back, that was one of the first things I did. I thought of positive expectation and cognitive reappraisal. So that said, are there any more theorists worth mentioning?
0: Well, there are many, but I'll go to two that are near and dear to my heart. And of course, that we echo probably every week in the podcast. There are Aaron T. Beck and Albert Ellis. They're most relatable to my work as a cognitive behaviorist. Ellis believes our thoughts, which can be automatic or deliberate, create emotions and whereby we get cognitive behavioral therapy and that we have a clinical treatment plan to discuss a stressful situation and then modify your emotions by challenging the distorted thinking. So that's that D, dispute the belief. You have your event, you have the behavior, you have the consequence of being stressed, but you dispute the belief. So we've come a long way, baby, as they say, because now the exciting part is that we can prove this using state-of-the-art equipment like fMRI imaging. I encourage our listeners to go to YouTube and just type in Anderson Cooper, who of course is from 60 Minutes, and Dr. Judson Brewer, so just type in Anderson Cooper and Judson Brewer, B-R-E-W-E-R, who is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist here locally at UMass Medical, and he wears this cap, almost like a swim cap, and it's filled with little fluids that actually can map the brain imaging. And after being taught a little bit of mindfulness and meditation at a weekend retreat, Anderson Cooper starts off in the relaxation response and it's all green, green, green. And then he's told by Dr. Brewer to think of a stressful event and all of a sudden it's red, 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 red. And then Dr. Brewer says, okay, drop back into mindfulness and meditation, and it goes back to green, 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 green. So we can see where different parts of the brain are activated based upon if we're in the stress-based response or eliciting the relaxation response.
1: We truly can. So now that we know some theories on where emotions come from, how are emotions formed? Is it a combination of environmental and genetic factors?
0: Well, once again, researchers don't agree on how emotions are formed and expressed, mainly because, think about it, emotions are hard to study as they're subjective and influenced by our upbringing, personality, and lifestyle. It's also subjective because emotions are so complex, operating on multiple levels. For example, our autonomic Nervous system which discusses our involuntary functions like heartbeat and breathing or our somatic nervous system like the five senses I like to discuss and getting the voluntary muscle movements in and of course not to go down the road of psychodynamic theory but of course our conscious and unconscious mind one thing I say to my patients all the time is that some thoughts are like bubbles at the bottom of a pan before they've risen to the surface They're deeply in our unconscious awareness and our conscious is trying constantly to keep them down, which is where meditation and mindfulness comes in is that we learn not to make things good or bad, we just experience them as is and eventually the brain doesn't run away from them. But again, let's look at trying to make sense of our world right now, Nico. I just feel like we're trying to survive and our COVID-19 pandemic is making it very difficult to thrive.
1: Yes, it's really—it really is a unique situation. And as you mentioned a couple weeks back in a podcast episode, being potentially isolated in a household can make you "quote unquote" sit in your stuff. So it does really make the ability to thrive difficult.
0: Right, and think about what we're doing right now. We're probably all sitting in that fight or flight response because we, you know feel like we can't do anything like antidote our stress to get back into the relaxation response. And unfortunately here, emotions are not the enemy. They're there to keep us alive. So despite our differences in the etiology that our experts, one thing they do agree on is that we can work with and reason with our emotions. Believe it or not, we have more control over how we feel and how we think.
1: What about mood? Are moods and emotions the same thing?
0: That's an excellent question, Nico. Moods and emotions are different, and that's only coming from my camp. In general terms, emotions are more upfront and center, like we discussed. And in my opinion, they're more related to an event or a person. Whereas moods tend to be a bit more enduring and can last for days. Again, researchers are still looking into this to see if it's an innate, or inborn or even environmental
1: that's really interesting i've heard the term emotional intelligence thrown around also can you speak more on this
0: right so picking up off of the idea of uh, moods and emotions there are two pioneers john mayer and peter Salovey. they both basically looked at can you basically build your emotional intelligence. And the short of it is they call it EI for emotional intelligence. And it's the ability to monitor and manage your emotions to basically have an awareness of others and then the competency to interact. So, by and large, when you have more positive emotions, you tend to have a better mood. So, they're interconnected in a way, specifically around the work I do as a cognitive behaviorist. But getting back to emotional intelligence, they postulated that it's a skill set that's made up of essentially four branches. Number one is to accurately perceive other emotions, somebody else's emotions. Number two would be to understand one's own emotions. The third is using emotions to help with thinking and decision-making. Again, going back to that top-down network where we're reasonable. And four, regulating emotions in a way of fitting to the situation. Mark Brackett, who is the author of a book called Permission to Feel, He's also the director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, has found that folks with higher EI, emotional intelligence, have improved engagement, behavior, and have better mental health and job performance.
1: So can emotional intelligence be taught?
0: I believe yes, and so do many researchers. Uh, There are studies and even an evidence-based approach for learning emotional intelligence both from the workplace and in schools. It's also what we do, Nico, helping other people and our listeners access better health that actually can be learned, but again, in a training format, which is why when I wrote the book, Prescription for Change, it needed to be done with the help or coaching with me, And you also did the brilliant online program for folks that want to access that in in a different way. It, again, has to be learned but practiced for better emotional regulation, which is also why it goes week to week in terms of shifts.
1: We recently celebrated World Emoji Day on July 17th, and it's amazing how emojis are a globally used hieroglyphic and are continually updated.
0: It is, and speaking of emotions, I'm glad you brought up emojis because, again, going back to our facial expressions, the human face has 20 to 30 facial muscles, leading to thousands of possible unique expressions. Emojis, I believe, were invented in Japan in 1999, and the world, I think it comes from the E for emoji is Japanese for picture, and emoji uh, stands for character. And what would we do without them? (laughs)
1: And a great thing about emojis and emotions is that they can be more or less universally understood, at least much easier than differentiating between languages, to say the least.
0: That's right. And if we look at the work I did at the um, Benson Henry Institute, you know, just our eyes can convey hundreds of different emotions and therefore affect how another person is experiencing what, you know, we might be conveying. There's so much more that we could talk about because we could look at how emotions regulate our senses and our senses regulate our emotions. Think about something that you might pick up on. Now, if it's something warm and sensory, like a favorite food that elicits a positive emotion from a memory, that's great but maybe it's something that doesn't make us feel good or it gives us you know, even something benign like I experienced when I went on vacation once, the first time I had sushi, I had a big piece of ginger with it and for some reason, I just had a visceral reaction and to this day, I can't stand the taste or smell of ginger. So it wasn't necessarily tied to a negative experience other than just having a visceral reaction to something that didn't agree with me. We can also look at at emotions from a a cultural standpoint, right? So again, that could be another whole podcast in and of itself about how certain cultures actually use emotions or suppress emotions to see what's important. That's actually something I see play out in my practice all the time when people are first generation or second generation immigrants to, to see how they um, their parents don't actually talk about emotions, yet they feel stifled and come to me to sort of re-experience things in a different way. We could also look at mindfulness and meditation because again, these are scientifically proven and link to increase happiness and better coping. The reason I also want to sort of wrap up the podcast talking about things like hope and gratitude, they actually antidote the negative effects of anger, guilt, shame, and distress, not to mention fear and anxiety. So if we once again look at our pandemic, we do need hope. And that's why you're seeing everybody have signs up in their yards or their house or billboards that say thank you to our essential workers, to our drivers, to our you know, um, supermarket employees, and, and certainly the essential workers that go beyond doctors and nurses and everybody that works at hospitals and clinics. Again, that gratitude antidote stress and, of course, the hope you know we might get down sometimes thinking about a vaccine or i know a lot of parents are anxious about the fall right now but we do need hope about maybe what life will look like for school or what might happen you know thankfully when we've developed a vaccine i know dr fauci mentioned once in terms of the race for the vaccine He's just proud for everybody developing one because we don't just need one company working on it, we need the world working on it. And then just lastly, a lot of what I'm hearing in my practice this week is sometimes we feel a little jealous or sometimes we feel a little envious. And again, these are emotions that are just normal and healthy. I mean, I certainly drive on Starro every day and I see people running on the river and I'm filled with jealousy and a little envy because I wanna be running and that's okay. And again, experiencing emotions and not labeling them as good or bad, but just having them come up and let them be, not stuffing them down like those bubbles in the bottom of the pan and we need of course the support and guidance of either coaches or therapists and that's essentially why i wrote my book prescription for change as it's a manual and of course listeners we need time patience and practice and we can literally change the way we feel by changing the way we think and the way we think affects how we feel
1: It really does. I think a lot of the references we mentioned during this episode prove that. So thank you, Colleen. You've taught us so much about emotions, where they come from, how they're formed, and how to regulate them. And I think the cultural aspect would be a great future podcast episode. And a lot of these topics are things that you mention in your book. So if those of you listening want to read the book on change, Prescription for Change, Using Your Lifestyle as Medicine, you can visit us on the web at www.RestoreBodyBalance.com book. Or to hear more about our programs, you can visit www.RestoreBodyBalance.com. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.